Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Wire China. The Diary Duel. The Li Ray case asks, what should be done when values like the free flow of information conflict with equally important values like the rule of law? By John Pomfret. Read to you by Cliff Larson. In August 2013, Josh Chung, a Chinese businessman, was reading the newly published memoir of Li Rei a senior Chinese Communist Party official, when he got an idea. In the book, which was banned in mainland China because it criticized the party, Li Rei revealed that he had maintained a diary since the 1930s, when he first joined the Chinese Revolution. As a one-time secretary to party chairman Mao Zedong, Li's personal diaries were sure to offer an invaluable perspective on critical events in modern Chinese history. Li intimated that he planned to entrust the diaries to his daughter, Li Nanyang, so she could find a place for them to be studied after he died. It's hard to remember the details of what transpired when I worked at the Central Organization Department, Li Rei wrote. But I've kept a diary almost every day. After I die, my daughter Nanyang will sort it out. When Chung, a graduate of Stanford University, read this, he immediately thought of Stanford's Hoover Institution for War, Revolution, and Peace, which was already home to, among others, the papers of Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek, Mei Yi-qi, a heralded Chinese educator and relative of Chung's wife. A self-described history buff, Chung wanted to contribute to the world's understanding of China. All he had to do was convince the daughter, Li Nanyang, to give the diaries to Stanford when the time came. During a visit to Stanford later that month, Chung shared the idea with a group of Stanford professors whose support, he said in a legal deposition given in May, was overwhelming. Jean Oi, a professor of political science at Stanford who was the founding director in 2011 of the Stanford Center at Peking University, connected Chung to Hoover. On a subsequent trip to Beijing in November of 2013, Chung found Li Rei's daughter. She too was keen, and according to Chung's deposition, she convinced her then 96-year-old father that Stanford was the right choice. Li Nanyang, a U.S. citizen, had already been smuggling parts of her father's papers out of China since 2004. Sometimes on tiny flash drives, sometimes whole volumes stuffed in her handbag, and in February 2014, she started passing them on to Stanford. 
In all, she moved about 100 volumes of diaries, letters, poems, and various other documents belonging to her father out of China. Hoover, however, didn't acknowledge that it had the diaries until February 16th, 2019, the day Li Rei died. Two months later, on April 23rd, Hoover held an event to celebrate the addition of Li Rei's papers to its collection. There, Li Nanyang shared the podium with Ian Johnson, a prominent writer on China and other specialists on China. Johnson described Li Rei as a patron saint of the unofficial history movement in China. Cheng sat in the audience, pleased he could help the very university that he told the deposition had changed my life. Little did Josh Cheng know, but his innocent aspiration to advance the study of Chinese history would touch off a transcontinental legal battle pitting Stanford and Li Nanyang against Li Rei's 91-year-old second wife, Zhang Yuzhen, who wants the diaries back in China. Two courts in Beijing have already ruled that Li Rei's papers should be returned to Zhang Yuzhen, according to Chinese inheritance law. Now, because Stanford lawyers claim they were denied the chance to represent Stanford's case by the Chinese courts, they have filed suit in an American one. A third trial is set to begin in 2023 in U.S. District Court in the Northern District of California to determine who owns the diaries. Legal expenses for the fight are already into the millions. In Beijing, Zhang Yuzhen, a retiree on a small government pension, has referred all questions about the case to the Organization Department of Chinese Communist Party, which is believed to be footing her side of the bill. Stanford University is paying Hoover's. At first blush, the Li Rei story is a simple one a diary written by an official who operated at the apex of power in communist China, shows up in the archives of the Hoover Institution of War, Revolution, and Peace. Desperate to censor the study of its history, the Chinese Communist Party wants the papers back. For anyone in favor of academic freedom and preserving honest accounts of history, i.e. most Western observers, the verdict would appear to be obvious. Hoover should remain in possession of the diaries. As Eric Waken, the director of Hoover's Library and Archives, puts it, how many insider accounts do you have from communist China? But a closer look reveals complexities and competing values, not simply between the United States and China, but within the United States as well. For one, experts on Chinese law in the United States are by no means united in their support of Hoover. Jacques Delisle, 
a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, is serving as an expert witness for Zhang Yujin's side of the case. After reading the verdicts from the two Chinese courts, Delisle says that both appear to have appropriately applied Chinese law to the facts as found by the courts. Where it's a matter of a Chinese court properly applying Chinese law, there's very little one can legitimately object to, at least where the Chinese law isn't objectionable on, say, human rights grounds, he says. And human rights grounds, he notes, don't figure in this case. Nicholas C. Housen, a professor of Chinese law at the University of Michigan, says that simply because Americans might not like rulings by the Chinese judiciary, that doesn't make them unlawful or illegitimate. We've been pressing the PRC to build rule of law in the civil and criminal law sectors for decades, he says. But then when rulings in perfect conformity with law are inconvenient or contrary to a parallel agenda of importance, we'd like to ignore those rulings or attack them. Put another way, what should be done when values like the free flow of information, transparency, and scholarly access to valuable historical information conflict with what are seen as equally important values like the rule of law and the protection of personal and property rights. A Chinese treasure. Who was Li Rei? The answer to this question is at the center of this case. Was Li Rei, as the Stanford side argues, a closet dissident? a frequent and pointed critic of China's system who lobbied for democratically oriented political change? His daughter, Li Nanyang, has said it's only natural that her father wanted his diaries out of China so that they could be open to all. Li Rei visited Hoover in 1989. Li Nanyang told The Wire and was deeply impressed by the idea of an open archive and free exchange of ideas. Or was Li Rei, as the other side argues, a committed member of the Chinese Communist Party who, despite years in prison for criticizing Mao Zedong, resolutely refused to relinquish his party membership and remain loyal to the party to the end? Someone like that, the legal team representing Zhang Yuzhen has argued, would never allow a Chinese treasure to leave his motherland. Anyone who knew Li Rei could not seriously believe that this longtime Chinese patriot and Communist Party official would want his diaries stored outside of China says Matthew Jacobs, an attorney at Vincent and Elkins LLP in San Francisco, who represents Zhang Yuzhen, much less at one of the most anti-China and anti-communist institutions in the world. Pretty much the only thing the two sides agree is this. Li Rei served at the heart of China's system for decades, and his papers constitute a precious cache of information about modern Chinese history. When it comes to Chinese studies, 
says Joseph Torrigan, an assistant professor at American University and one of the few scholars to have read the diaries, it's hard to overstate the importance of the documents. Li Ray's diary entries and subsequent writing on the Lushun Plenum, held between July and August of 1959, for instance, show how that critical party meeting and what Li Ray called Mao's leftist deviations led not only to famine that killed upwards of 40 million people, but also to the disastrous cultural revolution seven years later. During the plenum, Mao purged his defense minister, Peng Dehuai, after he had criticized Mao's policies. At the time, Li Rei refused to denounce Peng and was himself exiled to a labor camp and then to prison, where he spent eight years in solitary confinement. Democratic life in the party had already become abnormal, Lee wrote, and our so-called democratic centralism was left only with centralism, focusing on the will of a single man. Chairman Mao, Lee wrote, could not be criticized. If he was, Lee wrote, the whole party would severely punish any such offenders. Lee Ray's indictment of Mao for policies that kill tens of millions of people is now illegal in China, where the Communist Party has outlawed such criticism, branding it historical nihilism. Li Ray's entry also provide a historically important perspective on the June 4, 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown on pro-democracy protests. Li Ray's entry from April through July of 1989 demonstrate how widespread support was for political reform among the top echelons of the party and how widespread opposition to a bloody crackdown was among senior military officers. Today is an unforgettable May 17th, he wrote of a gorgeous spring day in 1989, when upwards of one million people took to the streets in Beijing to demonstrate for a freer China. The whole city is tumbling to support students, Li Ray wrote, that workers had begun to join the protest, shouting slogans, calling for political reform. Ingenuity and talent are gushing out at this time, he wrote. Such entries pop the party's official narrative that the demonstrations were the work of a small group of counter-revolutionaries. This is another reason why the party wants them off limits. Li Rei also wrote about a group of relatively liberal party officials, of which he was a member, and their efforts to advise party boss Zhao Ziyang, who wanted China to move in a more democratic direction. In an entry on May 3, 1989, Li Rei notes that in addition to arguing against shedding blood, Zhao had proposed a series of far-reaching reforms, including reducing the privileges of the sons and daughters of China's party elite. 
replacing a swath of middle-level party officials with better-educated younger graduates, and solving the issue of free speech by opening up the media to private newspapers. Zhao's more liberal views are widely known, but Li Rei's diaries add granularity to the conclusion that Zhao was ready to negotiate with the students and was therefore silenced. In the end, Zhao Ziyang lost out to hardline party officials who demanded an iron response to the demonstrations. A black weekend was how Li Rei entitled a diary entry on June 4th, and Zhao spent the rest of his life under house arrest until he died in 2005. Starting in July 1989, Li Rei was called before a series of panels which interrogated him on his activities and views. On July 7th, he told his diary he was ordered to write a self-criticism. Li's interrogators kept on rejecting it, and by September 11th, 1989, the document had grown to more than 5,000 characters, and it still wasn't enough. I've started a third draft of my self-criticism, he wrote. I'm totally reluctant. Perhaps of most interest today, Li Rei also had a lot to say about China's current party boss, Xi Jinping. And much of what he says contradicts the officially approved narrative about Xi and his rise to power. Li Rei was close with Xi's father, a senior party official named Xi Zhongxun, and wrote a fair bit about Xi Zhongxun's constant lobbying on behalf of his son. In a diary entry in 1987, Li Rei recounts that the party secretary of Hebei province became so enraged at Xi Zhongxun's advocacy for his son that he refused to promote Xi Jinping. Xi Zhongxun then arranged for Jinping to be transferred from Hebei to Fujian province, where the party secretary there was more amenable to currying favor with Beijing's elite, by providing their offspring with sinecures. When Xi Jinping went to bid farewell to the party secretary of Hebei, the man Li Rei wrote brushed Xi Jinping off. You're a cadre managed by the party center, he said. Don't talk to me. Still, because of his friendship with Xi Zhongxun, Li Rei had been predisposed to support Xi Jinping. But the diaries trace an arc of Li Rei's increasing alarm at Xi Jinping. In 2013, soon after Xi took power, Li Rei tried to help a friend, Jiang Yanyong, a military physician who in 2003 exposed how China was covering up its SARS epidemic. Jiang wanted permission to travel to Taiwan, and Li Rei appealed on his behalf to the party's organization department. In the diary, Li Rei noted that someone from the department then called him, Comrade Xi Jinping wants us to stay, the caller said. You, Li Rei, in the future, should be less nosy. When Xi Jinping was appointed to another term as party secretary at the 19th Party Congress in 2017, Li smirked to his diary, The front pages are covered with big headshots of Xi. Not even the Mao era reached this level. No wonder the Chinese Communist Party wants the diaries back.
When it comes to determining the rightful custodian of Li Rei's diaries, there are three competing aspects to balance. Legal, factual, and contextual. The legal part of the case involves an argument about whether the verdicts in the Chinese courts that Li Rei's diaries are part of his estate and should be returned to China are legitimate. While some say the Chinese courts correctly applied inheritance and property laws to side with Li Rei's widow, lawyers representing Stanford say that the Chinese court rulings are illegitimate. Stanford's attorney, Mark D. Litiak, of Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman LLP in Los Angeles, says the Chinese consulate in Los Angeles refused to provide Stanford with papers that would allow it to present its case in Beijing. At the consulate, Litvak said his colleagues were told, we know who you are and what this case is about. We will never legalize these papers. When lawyers tried to represent Stanford at one point in Beijing, Litvak told The Wire, Chinese bailiffs escorted them from the courtroom. The Chinese embassy did not respond to an email seeking comment on this claim. How can anyone say there's law in China, says Li Nanyang. All these experts say you have to respect Chinese law. Are they serious? The only law in China is the Chinese Communist Party. Lawyers representing Zhang Yuzhen contend, however, that Stanford purposely decided not to argue the case in China and launched the suit in U.S. federal court because it knew that it could only win the case in the United States. Stanford is forum shopping, says attorney Matthew Jacobs. One way to understand Stanford's move to bring the case to the United States, Jacobs says, was by flipping it. If historically significant original documents about, say, the Vietnam War had been stolen and taken to a foreign country, and a U.S. court ordered their return, Jacobs told The Wire, you would hope and expect the other country's courts to respect that ruling and return the materials. The same should hold true for Lee Ray's diaries, he says. Michigan's Nicholas Housen, who is not involved in the case, says there's plenty of precedent for the American courts enforcing a PRC judgment under PRC law, including cases involving inheritance and property rights. China's criminal justice system has lots of problems, he says, but the Li Rei case doesn't involve a criminal prosecution. It belongs, he says, to the quotidian world where U.S. courts enforce civil judgments of foreign courts. As for the facts of the case, they are muddy. Did Li Rei want diaries donated to Hoover or not? Li Rei left unsigned a will that bequeaths the diaries to his second wife. Also left unsigned is a document drawn up by his daughter, Li Nayang, entrusting the diaries to her and, by extension, Hoover. The official donation document to Hoover carries only Li Nanyang's signature. Li Nanyang said she signed a document herself because if she tried to get her father's signature notarized in China, the Communist Party would have intervened. A few facts do appear to be clear. Li Rei knew that his daughter wanted to move his diaries to Hoover, 
In his deposition, Josh Chung told lawyers that he'd met Li Ray in Beijing several times in 2014 and 2015 and spoke with him about the idea. Autographing one of his books for Chung, Li Ray thanked Chung for serving as a bridge between him and Hoover. Li's diaries also mention his plans to donate his papers to Hoover. In an entry on October 15, 2017, he writes about a visit by his daughter who discussed the donation plan with him. Li Nayang was busy with this important thing, he writes. Earlier in an entry on January 30th of that year, he noted that he had advised others in party circles to follow his way of handling things, i.e., giving the diaries to Hoover. Li Rei wrote that at least one of his associates, Du Daozheng, a prominent liberal journalist and editor, was considering following Li Rei's lead. He didn't in the end. There are other indications, however, that Li Rei had second thoughts and that his relationship with his daughter was often rocky. Li Nayang, a 71-year-old U.S. permanent resident, is fiery. She's a passionate supporter of ex-President Donald Trump and right-wing conspiracy theories in the United States. There's also no love loss between her and Zhang Yujin, Li Rei's widow, who married Li Rei in 1979. In 2020, Li Nanyang authored a book on Zhang Yujin titled My Stepmother, Wife and Political Commissar, in which she accused the Communist Party of assigning Zhang to marry her father so that the party could monitor the influential longtime critic. In an interview on October 1st, 2014, Li Rei expressed exasperation with his daughter's deeply anti-communist views. Li Nayang is Li Nayang, and I am me, he said. Li Nayang is my daughter, but she can't represent me, and I don't allow her to represent me. The wider context surrounding the case is also impossible to ignore. Li Rei's case is unspooling against a backdrop of unprecedented friction in U.S.-China relations, friction that is fueled in part by a withering crackdown on speech and thought in China. The presence of Li Rei's diaries on U.S. soil, American University Torrigian notes, is yet another example that America has become the repository of Chinese history. In China, historical archives, which used to be open, have been shuttered to foreign and Chinese historians alike. Chinese censors are also engaging in a bizarre type of ex-post-facto censorship, deleting articles from digital collections of periodicals dating back to the 1950s because the articles are sympathetic to the idea of a more liberal China. The United States is one of the only countries that still keeps the hard copies of many of those magazines. Chinese historians now come to the U.S. to study their history, Torrigian says, because they often can't access the uncensored materials at home. This is why, says Hoover's Waken, the fight to keep the diaries is so important. Hoover can't just make a copy of the diaries and return the originals to China. 
In this day and age of rampant digital alterations, Waken says, having the original documents is important to make sure they aren't altered. For his part, Josh Chung doesn't want anything to do with the case anymore. In his deposition, he said he was worried that it had become too political. Chung has found another way to promote an understanding of China. For the last six years, he's been the executive director of the Stanford Center at Peking University, which, according to its site, represents a bridge across the Pacific for Stanford, a platform for education and research for faculty and students from all of Stanford's seven separate schools, bridging together East and West. Regardless of where Lee Ray's diaries end up, the case highlights just how wobbly this bridge has become for people like Chung and institutions like Stanford. How should they weigh their desire to remain in the good graces of the People's Republic of China, which for Stanford represents a huge source of talent and money, against the liberal ideas that made these institutions great in the first place? Delicately, if an email from Gene Oi, the Stanford Center's founder, to Chung is any indication. Despite backing Chung's idea to bring Li Ray's diaries to Stanford in the first place, Oi did not attend the event at Hoover in April 2019. In a note on February 17, 2019, she agreed with Chung's assessment that they should keep a low profile. Oi did not respond to an email seeking comment. Yes, she wrote to Chung, also think it would be a good idea to keep our role quiet. For many reasons. John Pomfret is a former Beijing bureau chief of the Washington Post, an author of The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, America and China from 1776 to the Present. His latest book, From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance, is due out in October. The Diary Duel by John Pomfret, published in The Wire China, read to you by Cliff Larson. <laughs>